Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellenbecker, founder and senior wealth advisor for the Ellenbecker Investment Group. I want to welcome you to our special series of Money Sense, specifically dedicated to providing valuable information regarding the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. For nearly 30 years, I have been helping listeners learn how to relate many of life's situations to their finances. This pandemic has caused wide-scale disruption in nearly every sector of our lives. No matter your personal situation, we strive to meet you where you are at, both financially and emotionally. Our guests during this series include a futurist, economist, physician, psychologist, as well as local Milwaukee business professionals to get their perspective on how you can apply their insight and expertise to your financial future. This important series will be aired on WISN AM 1130 during our regular Money Sense times, which are Saturdays at 2 o'clock p.m. and Sundays at noon. They will also be available on demand at ellenbecker.com slash money sense or on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. We hope you will find these informative and be sure to share them with your family and your friends. My guest today is Jason Grobel. He is the owner and president of EW Grobel, home of Grobel's, Cy Gingsburg's Meat and Deli and Topper's Pickle Company. And their headquarters are located in Detroit's historic Eastern Market. It's just a wonderful story. As you know, we're a family business, but we're really uh, two generations here. I can't believe it, but um, his is a family business and it was founded by his great-grandfather, Emil Grobel in 1883. That's 137 years ago. He began working in the business at a very early age, and he is currently the fourth generation's owner. Their company is among the largest corned beef processors in the nation with national distributions to major supermarkets, chains, and restaurant distributors. And so what I wanted to talk about and ask Jason to help us understand a little bit better is this entire food market, the meat market. And we're coming into another holiday. We've made it through Memorial Day. And boy, if that's not one of the biggest grilling and meat eating times of the year, I don't know what is. So welcome to the show, Jason. Oh, thank you for having me, Karen. It's uh, it's really uh, an honor to have to be on with you today. And, you know, uh, it's funny because we're our, my company's 25 years. I'm so happy I made it. And to think of a family business and being a fourth generation with 137 years, first of all, that isn't, that's not easy. So I just, it just is amazing. If you could talk a little bit about your company and what it's like to be in a family business. And I have to tell you, corned beef is one of my favorite things that there is, a great good old corned beef sandwich. But you've had so much experience, not only that you can lend yourself to your own experience, but to your family's history. Oh, sure. And, um, and uh, we went through our challenges. Uh, family businesses can be very challenging to go through generations, of course. That's why, that's why it's so rare. Um, I call it fate or whatever. Uh, people say, oh, no, you know, you, you had to do well. Certainly, I didn't have a lot to do with bringing it for the three generations before me. So it was just lucky. Uh, maybe it's lucky that there was somebody at each generation that allowed for a transition, a handover, pass the baton, if you will, and that had adequate competency and drive to navigate through the challenges of, of operating a business. And now you've got two daughters in the business and five children and two of yeah. them are interested. 
and a, and a son who's interested in it as well. I have a total of uh, five children and three of them are interested. That's really so great. What we try to do, we've grown a lot uh, recently in this generation. I think my, the most passionate people for the business are my great grandfather and myself. I think my, my father, my grandfather and fathers didn't have that same amount, but they did, they passed that baton. And, and so as we're growing now, one of the things, you know, we focus on, um, it's really important to have the competency in your business, but it's also critical to be, to be successful in business today. You need to understand the dynamics of human psychology to be a great coach and to, to inspire, to lead people and to treat them with respect at all times. Uh, that's what people demand today. You know, it used to be a time when, you know, people say, well, you know, hey, you know, I give you a paycheck. What do you, what more do you need? Well, it turns out people are demanding more today. And, and I think to be uh, growing and successful, you need everybody putting all their energies in and people aren't going to put all their energies in if they're at a place where they don't feel uh, connected and part of that team and respected. You know, Jason, I've been talking to a lot of different business owners and individuals. And during this whole COVID thing, it was an opportunity to see who was on the bus and who wasn't in your company. And when you have a company that you have continued to honor and create trust and visibility, you yourself, and uh, to be open with your employees, those are the ones who, when we go through a crisis like this, are really there for you. Yeah, you know, we've had a tremendous engagement in our team during this challenging time. Of course, we've continued to operate as an essential business. There's no matter, no matter what, a lot of people, the biggest difference in everybody with this situation is, is that fear level. And different people respond to that in different ways, right? There are people that are so fearful that they really don't want to come out of their homes until the all clear is given. And then on the other hand, you have people that boldly go through it. That doesn't mean necessarily that they're careless. It just means that they're going to proceed regardless of, of the risks because they, they've evaluated that. So our first responders are those kinds of people. Not everybody's cut out to be a first responder, right? And, the, and you have to have first responders to keep a company open. In a country. Yes. Right? And so... Just because you're not that, you don't have the temperament of a first responder doesn't mean you're a bad person. That's what I'm trying to say. I have four daughters and, and one of them, I would always sneak up on her and try to scare her. But <laughs> it was easy because she would, she was easy to scare, right? She's one of those persons that, you know, and uh, we always had fun with that. So, but, um, in, but my other daughters, they were like, she just, they just look at me like, <laughs> roll their eyes, you know, not, not even, I, I couldn't get a response out of it. Whereas my oldest daughter, she'll just, she'll just yell out a big scream and everybody knows <laughs> it, laughs about it. It's just what she does, you know? So you probably don't want that. You know, that's probably why she's not in a first responder role. Cause <laughs> <laughs> the point is there's different types and, and we, we need different types, even within our organizations, even now. Jason, how did you deal with your employees? Because so many of the plants got shut down and, and I really do want to get a handle on what is that like? I know that 
I had read um, the hog slaughter capacity is about 500,000 heads per day. And they're ta- they talked about such a major reduction. And I don't think people really think about, well, where does the meat go? And if they're shutting down all these big plants that are providing food, what is that domino effect? What, how does that work? Why don't we take a quick break so that you can go right into that. Give us an overview of what's really happening behind the scenes. And with that, we'll be right back. My guest today is Jason Grobel, and he is the owner and president of EW Grobel, home of Grobel, Cy, Gingsburg, Meat and Deli, and Topper's Pickle Company with the headquarters in Detroit's historic Eastern Market. And I've asked Jason to come on to kind of give us a, an overview and a little bit of insight into all of these things that we're hearing on the news, that we're going to run out of meat. And of course, you know, we went through the toilet paper, we went through all of the other things. And I'm wondering how accurate is that? And how does it work behind the scenes when all of a sudden they say there's not going to be enough meat? And then of course, people start hoarding and filling up their refrigerators. And it's a domino effect and it's hard to understand. Sure. And good to be with you, Karen. Thanks again. Thank you. Yeah, so sometimes things aren't all they appear, but clearly if we have a, a chain of, of processing and it starts with the farmers, with the cattle and, and or, the, or the hogs and or, or poultry, and, but then that, that has to be uh, harvested and brought to market. And if that harvesting stops, then the flow of food stops. What we've really understood, and I, I don't think it was made as clear we hear of the same essential businesses and non-essential, but in the reality, there was really non-essential, essential, and then critical. So the example of critical were like nurses. All the hospitals sent out early on here letters to their nurses to say, look, if you, if you call in sick, we're going to take that as your resignation. That's it. Now that might seem very harsh to the average individual, but they are literally in this endeavor. There are soldiers, there are frontline soldiers. It's those nurses that prevent us from absolute, you know, medical disaster as a result of a virus spread like this. It would be equivalent to the, if you know, the troops on the day of battle saying, you know, I got a tummy ache. I don't, I don't feel like I want to go <laughs> into battle today. It doesn't work. They don't allow that. There's no calling in sick. That's exactly what the level we were going through. That being said, early on, we didn't identify that the slaughtering was, uh, it was deemed essential, but not, but not critical. Later on, uh, the president did announce the harvesting of beef, poultry, pork, you know, all, all the meats. Yes. Uh, but that didn't happen until later. And by then, there'd already been a lot of closures. And so that put a huge interruption into the supply. It's unfortunate in any tragedy, whether it's a storm or anything that creates a change in usage. Uh, Cause I want to address even paper towels. Yes, there was a little hoarding going on, but normally people aren't home that much. So they don't buy that much uh, home style bathroom tissue. Now, if you ever notice when you're in a restaurant or a, or a commercial place of work, the tissue is very different. A lot of times it's on a giant roll on that one of those dispensers. So you can't just use those at home. So we had an overstock of commercial 
bathroom tissue because prior to COVID, maybe two thirds with commercial, one third with home. And then after it, now we're doing what? 80% home and 20% commercial. So that's what one reason why we're short. It just, it's a transition. So the same thing happens with the grocery stores. It seems like there's hoarding going on throughout the store, but the reality is the stores aren't big enough to handle the flow because we shut down all our restaurants. If you shut down where people are getting food, people get half their food from restaurants and half from the supermarket. We closed all those restaurants down or a bulk of them, except for care, some carry out here and there. So that put an enormous strain on the entire supermarket system. So it isn't that people were eating more or buying more. Let's say these restaurants are permanently done and we're going to eat at home. We're going to, everybody's going to eat at home more often. Whatever size refrigerator you're used to having, you need double the size now because you're going to consume double the amount. Unless you want to go every day to the supermarket, if you want to just go primarily once a week, you're going to need a larger pantry and you're going to need a larger refrigerator or a pair of refrigerators as opposed to what you've had. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, that's what we would do if we stayed in this situation. We would adapt that way. But that's good. this is only temporary and we're going to go back to eventually eating back in restaurants. And that's why we don't really need to rush out and buy a new refrigerator. We'll just go more often and pack it to the gills like we've all been doing and, and get by. But do, do you see what I'm saying? And the same thing applies to the stores themselves. We would build twice as many supermarkets as we shut down the restaurants. But you can't do that in a snap of a finger. You can't even do that in months, right? So everything is just temporarily, we're channeling all of the consumption through a channel that is not built for it. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's the reason for this. It's not just that consumers are going crazy and buying too much. What happened when so many of the workers on the, on the lines came down with COVID? What, what is the backup? And, and then, of course, again, that's a whole chain reaction when they can't get the food processed. What happened to all of that meat that where do you go with a month of hogs? Well, so animals go through two segments of their life, you know, and it's different for different breeds and different for beef and and poultry and pork. But the bottom line is half of their life they graze and then the other half they're they're on special feed to fatten them up. Um, And so they kept more in the range than going to feedlots, but you know, at, at their half-life segment, they just backed that up uh, for a period of time. But I mean, I think we all became aware how critical this is. I just wanna be clear that when those plants were shut down, it wasn't because their employees were sick with COVID. So most people that are positive for COVID are carriers, but don't get really very sick the people who do get sick, it's either you don't get sick or you, or you get it really heavy. There's only, it's a very small percentage that get the symptoms, but when they do get them, it's, it can be very vicious. And it, that's the scary part of it too. So, and, and that's why when I said at the beginning, a lot of people are very fearful. There's risk in everything we do. When we get, one of the riskiest things we do every day is getting into that car. Um, my uh, son-in-law, recently had a near fatal 
uh, accident and um, uh, a truck tire came off of a, of a semi truck across the way and, and grazed the windshield. He was actually sitting in the, in the passenger side of the car and um, his father was driving and he put his right arm up and it broke his arm. Uh, but fortunately, nothing worse happened. But he was very shaken up and uh, his doctor had him go see a psychologist. And uh, I think the way the guy handled it was brilliant. He said, you know what's happened to you? You're not abnormal at all. Your fear right now of driving is absolutely rational. What's happened to you is the veil of denial of fear has been temporarily lifted from you. Because we rush around in these little tin cans hurtling right by each other on two-lane highways at incredible speeds that you know, you're depending upon everybody who passes you to not veer into you. And most people just put this out of their mind. They don't even think about it on a day-to-day -day basis. He says, here's the good news though. Don't worry, give it a little bit of time. The veil of denial will fall upon you again and you will be able to drive without any fear. And that's basically how we, we operate. So we pick and choose, but it, the problem is the media has been talking about this every single day, day after day after day. And it's very difficult not to succumb to the fear, but there's, there's risks in everything in life. Uh, anyway, I just wanted to cover that, but um, back to what's happened to the prices in cattle. So a lot of people, whenever we get into a shortage situation, it could be uh, after a power outage or a, a national disaster of any sort, the prices on things go up, right? And then the first things that consumer advocates say is, we're gonna fight price gouging. Right now with the beef, yeah, we got plenty of cattle, but there's nobody turning it into meat. The bottom line is the people who have that experience chose, chose not to go to work. And because a, a couple of employees got sick, then they tested the rest and then they're, they're carriers, so they shut them down. That's just what happened. The reason the price has to go up is the same thing with gasoline. Now, there was a huge gasoline shortage in, in uh, the time when Nixon was president. And he chose to put price controls because the price was shooting up. Well, all that did was run us out of fuel. Look, I don't want to pay $10 a gallon for gas. But if it means running out, I would rather that price go up to that. I might drive to work with a neighbor, even though we're not in the exact same place, uh, we'll make it work at that point, right? And then secondly, a lot of times I'll avoid unnecessary driving so that if my other neighbor whose wife is expecting, he can drive her to the hospital because he can get gas because it hasn't run out. If we leave the price the same, it just runs out. So it's a necessary thing that the price goes up when there's a shortage of supply so that people veer away from it and maybe I'll choose to, I don't know, I'll eat vegetarian for a week or I'll, I'll use up some of my canned soup supply, you know what I mean? And not, instead of buying meat for the week. And that's literally what happens. People make that, that, that's how our system works. Otherwise you'd have, the only other option is to have a bureaucrat saying who gets meat and who doesn't. But, that, but unfortunately that's how it has to work, if that makes any sense. It does. Let's take a break. And when we come back, let's talk about exactly how safe is our food. And when people are buying food from the market and they open up the package, they wash it, 
Um, do they need to be washing the packaging? I mean, is our food really safe to, to be eating? And I guess that would be at any time, but particularly now, it just seems like there's so much uncertainty and so hard to understand. I can remember working late and being so hungry going home, thinking, what am I going to make? And stopping at the grocery store, getting one of those chickens, coming home and putting it on the counter, opening it up and taking a piece of chicken, not washing my hands, not even thinking about it. And, you know, I'm really healthy. And I always say I've got really great antibodies. And I don't want to screw that up by being too cautious. But yet, how do we approach our food? And with that, we'll be right back. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellenbecker. I'm the founder and the senior wealth advisor for the Ellenbecker Investment Group. And my guest today is Jason Grobel. And he is the owner of one of the largest corned beef processors in the nation. And he has national distributions to major supermarkets, chains, and restaurant distributors. And of course, we've got a great little Jewish deli in town here. And I go in there and I get the matzo ball soup. And then I have that great big corned beef sandwich. <laughs> and when my mother was in the nursing home and she has passed away now, I used to stop there and get her the corned beef um, sandwich. And she liked the grilled, you know, all grilled up. I liked it with just the great rye bread. And uh, so I need to learn, learn a little bit more about that. But then again, how safe is our food? I mean, we really depend on restaurants to be cooking it well when we buy it in the deli ourselves when it's prepared for us give us a little bit of insight into that whole process first of all glad to be with you again karen and and i'm glad you asked, asked that as well by the way we at Grobles, we're so passionate about jewish deli it, it really is a um it's been disappearing a little bit uh, over the last number of years and it, it's our mission to ensure that America doesn't lose its source of great uh, Jewish deli restaurants. And, and we supply those restaurants and support them. And uh, it is our passion to do so. Uh, so anyway, um, as far as food safety goes, in my career, and I've been at this for <laughs> more years than I want to say, but it amazes me how far we've come as, as a country in the food safety and chain. Um, one of the amazing things, even just, just simply, that every truck coming from the packers that harvest the beef and they bring it to us, who we further process it and, and then deliver it either to supermarkets or, or restaurants. And the trucks coming into us and leaving us have these electronic temperature monitors on board. Now that was, that's only been in the last 15 years. So that ensures that if something goes wrong, that we can catch it. Even if it's, so if this truck's been on the road for four days, it could have lost refrigeration, but then got it back running again. So it seems cold when we get it, but we know better now. We know that it, if it saw high heat, we will contain that load. And we've notified the USDA, um, so it's not like we return it and they just sell it to somebody else, some unwitting user. Uh, it gets controlled and dealt with. Those, that's just one tiny example of the many, many elements of uh, improvement in our food safety systems. The awareness, the process, really from the farm in how the animals are handled to the, uh, to the harvesting and, and then to further processing 
as well as uh, your restaurants. And of course, in, even in, in supermarkets, they do a lot of handling of food. We've never been better. There's no perfect, but there's nobody that, unless you want to go back into, into caveman days where you're doing everything yourself, we are all depending on each other. And, uh, but the good news is um, the food safety is second to none. The, the awareness um, is, uh, is excellent today. I mean, I, I used to see when I was young, some operators that were really not, <laughs> shouldn't be doing, shouldn't be operating. I, I don't ever see that anymore. Um, and and it, again, it's just the basics. It's the same thing that you, you depend on in a hospital, right? But that being said, I, I'll share another little quick story there. I, you know, I was on the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur Program and I was a judge. And one of the, one of the amazing uh, stories of entrepreneurship was from an elderly doctor. He was retired as a doctor, but he helped the hospital do a remodel. And he convinced the board to spend a lot of extra money on a hand-washing verification system so that every nurse and, and caregiver, when they go into each room, their badge is registered automatically as they walk through the door, but they also have to go right over. To, there's a sink in every room to wash their hands and it registers there. At the end of the day, you get a report of everybody who went in a room without washing their hands. The real result of this, 26% reduction in infectious rates at that hospital. Wow. And those caregivers, she or he, um, is, is not doing it on purpose. Here's what happens. There's supposed to be three on the floor, two called in sick. Now, she or he is just rushing and just to, just to try to check on these patients because they're shorthanded. You know it happens. We all know this happens, right? People are people. And that's when they tend to skip a step. The unfortunate action of that is they're effectively little bumblebees pollinating germs from one patient to the next. And we know this. The single most important thing, whether it's food processing or in a hospital, is washing our hands regularly. So and we, we've all been working very hard at that. And I, and I think all your, uh, your viewers and listeners should feel very comfortable about the foods that, that we get. Now, wash it at home? Absolutely. You know, before, if you're going to have a can of soda, you shouldn't just open it up and drink right out of the side of that can. You should wash that off first. You should uh, even, you know, most, much produce now is, is pre-washed. You're okay there because it has been pre-washed. Doesn't hurt to do it again. Uh, but again, it's about washing the outside of the packaging. We do that here. Uh, it's one of the unique things we do is we sanitize the outside of every, the beef we buy is, is in cryovac packages. We sanitize the outside of it before we even open it up for that exact reason. So talking about what you do, just give me a synopsis of how do you do make corned beef? <laughs> yeah. Sure. So uh, I can talk all day about corned beef. No, um, you know, first of all, corned beef is to, is to beef what ham is to pork. So they're just the cured versions of each other. And uh, the, yes, the Irish invented corned beef. It's called corned beef. Uh, why isn't it called corned pork? I don't know, just because we're not consistent as butchers. We're not the brightest bulbs, but we, you know, 
<laughs> but the reason for the word corned means when they first started doing it, they were just packing meat in salt to preserve it. And it would, it would actually in dry salt, you know, and we don't do that today. We immerse it and inject brine into it, salt water. But back in those days, the salt came out of the ground as nodules. So those were corns of salt, hence the name or the word corned beef. Okay. okay. And then how do we prepare that? Yeah, we make up a brine solution. And in some cases in our Jewish style, we put a little less moisture in and it's more of the savory of the garlic and onion flavoring. Whereas in our Irish American style, it's more of a pickling spice blend, a little more moisture, because usually that's designed, the Irish style is more for the dinner and the, the Jewish style is more for the, for the tall stack sandwich. So sense. when you when you package it and we go to the store, we find those packages that have brine right in them. You just throw that in the water and you throw in the corned oh, yeah. beef. Correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's all part. Of, that's all part of it. And uh, and a lot of times we'll have a little spice packet in there too. Yes. Oh, careful to pull that out of there and not cook it without opening. <laughs> I still remember coming home and my mom having corned beef and cabbage, and carrots and potatoes, and it was just always. Uh, you know, it'd be a Sunday dinner. And right. that's one of the things that I think has, has changed and maybe where meat has become so, such a vital part. And, you know, Jason, I grew up, my dad, there was 11 children in his family and he was the youngest of four boys. And um, all the other boys worked in the Taconite mines and other places. Then he had sisters in between. And every night he never got meat because he would get the broth, the potatoes. <laughs> and really what they'd get is they'd have um, noodles. My grandmother made homemade noodles. Mm -hmm. And so when he married my mom, to him, success was being able to have meat on the table for everyone. That's how he viewed it. It sure. was that made him successful because he said he always felt it wasn't fair that he never got meat. So my mother would cook a beef roast and a pork roast together or chicken and a pork roast or whatever it was. I mean, meat to my father was success. And I think how we've lost that sitting down to dinner, we've lost the Sunday dinner where the conversation was, the family got together. But one of the things COVID has done is it's really forced people to eat together. It's forced people to do yeah. meals together, to prepare together, to converse together. So I look at the shortage too, and I, and I, I know myself, I was cooking more unfortunately gained a few pounds during that process, <laughs> but um, it was, you know, it was, it was great. And so I think we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, let's kind of look at what you think the future holds for us. And do you think that, you know, these processing plants are going to get back to where they are? Are they already? Do people have to worry? I have to say, when I go to the grocery store, there doesn't seem to be a shortage I noticed that the prices are a little bit higher, but it seems like it's back to normal in terms of the availability. And with that, we'll be right back. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellen Becker. My guest is Jason Grobel. And as I said a couple of times, he has a 137 year old business. He is the fourth generation. He has three of his five children in the business who are interested in carrying that on which I think is just absolutely amazing. And uh, we talked a little bit earlier about how difficult it can be to have family businesses. And 
I know my daughter is with me and she's the president of our company. So we have two generations and if it works and when it works well, it's absolutely fantastic. Wouldn't you say? It, it absolutely is, uh, Karen. I mean, and again, thank you for, uh, for having me here. Uh, it is you. just great. And I know before that we were talking about what you see as the, as the future with food. And I'm seeing where I'm shopping, at least, that the stores look pretty well stocked. And there's no signs that say you can only take one or two packages. But I did experience that. So where are we kind of right now? I think you're going to see good supplies out there for now. But it's a little bit, it'll still be somewhat spotty. You know, these plants shut down, but they got them back going. We're almost, we're up to normal capacity again now from the plants. You know, the, the, the shortage over that period that had some effect. And is and what's happened is I think you're going to start to see that better supplies in the stores. And, uh, but it'll still be a little spotty for a while. As uh, what's also going on is as the restaurants are beginning to open up, they have to refill their whole supply pipeline. You know, it's not just, you can't just get the food. You can't just beam it from the processor to the store. It, it has to be in warehouses and it's in trucks. And so there's an actual whole uh, uh, supply chain that has to be refilled now, which is going to take a bit of, you're going to see prices a little bit higher because of, because of that for a while, but then they should start to uh, restore nicely. Back to the family, as you asked about before, and being a family business, I just wanted to say that it is it is a wonderful thing, but it's also about creating that same family with every one of, of our employees. We really, really uh, work hard to do that. And, and it's a sustainable thing. And I talk about that in, uh, I've actually written a book called Leading America Back to Work, and it's available on Amazon. And, it, and it's all about creating a business that, that runs on respect. I talked about earlier in the segments uh, before that, you know, uh, people want to be a part of something and they want to be, uh, that respect is a critical part of it because they can go work in a lot of places and they will. So the successful employers are those who build a culture of respect. And they're in, in the book talks, uh, you know, how to do that in many different ways. I also think a really big and important thing is the leader leading from their values and transparency in a company is very important. And I know that there are some companies that aren't going to make it through this for a whole variety of reasons, which I, I guess every so many years, things just sort of shake out and the stronger, you know, the stronger businesses survive. But it is hard to see in our communities that we're losing some of the businesses and some of our family businesses and some, of course, our chains even. But it's really hard to, to give up. And when I transitioned my business to my daughter, I remember thinking, I don't want her to change my baby's clothes, you know, because <laughs> it is your baby. But yet what you said very early on is this last two generations, particularly this last generation, has had a different vision and has grown the company. And that's what it takes to have staying power, to see your employees um, as people and as family, and to look at what's going on in the community and how you can react and be present for it. And so I'm curious what you've learned from this as a business owner and, um, and about your business. What, what are you going to be doing different going through this pandemic? 
Well, obviously we've, you know, we've changed the way we do things as many, many businesses had. We're much more effective at, from, we have more employees that can work at home now. We've learned how to do that. We've sort of been forced into that. Um, just as I think we're going to have online learning, I, you know, a lot of people say, oh, no, it's, it's no good and, and it doesn't work. No, of course it doesn't work right now, but once we tweak it and work with it, uh, there'll be certain things that'll work great online. There'll still be things that you need, you know, uh, teachers directly with, uh, and we'll do a nice blend. And then that's ultimately how we get there, right? We got to, and, and so this, as you said before, you know, one of the blessings or I guess silver linings of this, uh, the curse of COVID has been, it's brought families together. It's given us a little bit of a timeout for some of us. Uh, it's allowed us to, yeah, to, to spend more time at home together. How about to pause and breathe? Yeah, <laughs> um, all that is good. And uh, the point is that if we all work together and show each other love, even with just smiles and gestures, that's what we can do to really help get ourselves back to what we would call as normal. Um, so we only have a couple minutes left. What is the secret? to making good corned beef at home. Oh, I'm glad you <laughs> asked. So when, when you're cooking um, in the standard, the standard way to cook corned beef at home is in, a, is in a pot on the stovetop covered with water. And the problem is if you leave it on too high, it bubbles over and makes a mess. It's got to simmer there for two and a half to three hours. You don't have to babysit it the whole time, but you have to babysit it enough at the early end because if you, if you let it go too low, the water drops below 210 degrees and then it's not going to cook, be cooked properly. So when you're, even though you've waited two and a half, three hours, it's going to be tough. So the key wow. to stay on it, you want a nice simmer all the time, just a light bubble in the pot. And early on, you got to turn it all the way up for the first 10 minutes because the water's all cold. Set your watch to come back at your timer at 10 minutes, turn it down and then right as it's at a boil, just keep adjusting it and just, just check it once in a while, you get used to it. Uh, but if you do that, by the time you're done, it'll be at 200 degrees on the inside with your thermo meat thermometer, then you know it's fully cooked. It'll also be fork tender and everybody will love, love your corned beef and they'll <laughs> love you even more. I know the magic ingredient is love. One, we have a, what just a second or two left. What would be one thing you tell my listeners, um, your new friends, to think about as they move forward through this um, summer? I I just say, you know, continue to to use common sense, wash your hands regularly, practice safe distancing, but go forth and be bold. Every movie plot that's ever, all the great movies they they teach you. You can't run away from your troubles. You have to face life. And we can face life, but we can do it smartly. And we're, we have the tools to use them. Live by what you trust, not by what you fear. My guest today is Jason Grobel. If you would like, you can get his book, Leading America Back to Work. Jason, thank you so much for being a guest. This was terrific. Bye-bye.
Thank you for tuning in to our COVID-19 edition of Money Sense. Our goal is to provide valuable information so that you can feel more confident in your financial decisions. You can listen to this show and any that you may have missed at ellenbecker.com slash money sense or on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. To discuss these topics and more with one of our wealth advisors, call us at 262-691-3200 or visit ellenbecker.com for a complimentary consultation.